Hebrews 4, 11 to 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Father in heaven, as we come to you, I pray, give us ears to hear your voice. We thank you that we can come to you as as loving, accepted children in Christ. But Father, protect us from just hearing what we want to hear today. Give us what we need. We need to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to do a thought experiment to start off. Now, don't answer this out loud, please, okay? Don't answer this out loud. How would you answer this question? How would you briefly describe the Bible? What adjectives would you use to describe it? The scriptures. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. This is a classic text on the power of the word of God. But it might seem somewhat out of place in this context, right? I mean, we, Reed's been, if you were here the last couple of weeks, Reed has been teaching on from verse 7 of chapter 3 through verse 11 of chapter 4 has been talking about being careful and warning us to not fall into the same kind of disobedience that the Israelites did, that, that, that brought them into God's judgment. And we've been challenged and encouraged to, to pursue and diligently strive to enter into the rest of God. And then all of a sudden, there's these two verses on the Word of God. It seems like, what's, where, where's this coming from? It seems to be coming out of nowhere, perhaps. We've been talking about, the, we've been cautioned about being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and, and to, to be believing people, those who believe the promises of God and the word of God. And then there's this, these two verses on describing the word of God in, in such a powerful way. And the key for us is to understand the connection between verses 11 and 12. Probably about 10 years ago, I read this book on how to study the Bible that I found incredibly helpful. And it was by John Piper, and he, he gave this analogy. He said, the Bible is not full of individual pearls, like nuggets here and there that aren't really connected, but rather it's like a golden link of chains, all connected. And so when we see the author of Hebrews here Beginning verse 12 with the word for, he's giving a reason of what he just said before. He's giving us a reason for why we should strive to, to enter into God's rest so that we don't fall by the same sort of disobedience as the Israelites. The disobedience of the Israelites is described in verse 2 of chapter 4 where it says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. And why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
Specifically, we're told that, that their, their disobedience was a disobedience of unbelief. That, that was their disobedience. That was the central disobedience. And, and I would say that's our central disobedience. Whenever we disobey, it is unbelief. It's not primarily the external activity of disobedience. It is the internal disobedience of unbelief. So later in verse 2, again, it says that, that the message or the word they heard did not benefit them. And why what? Why didn't it benefit them? Because it wasn't united by faith in those who listened. It's important to see the focus on the word or the message or the good news that they disobeyed. It wasn't, it's not even just unbelief in some vague, nebulous, abstract sort of way. It was that they were filled with unbelief concerning God's word, God's message, the good news that God had spoken to them. The word did not benefit them because they didn't believe it. And we should stop just for a moment because remember, the context tells us these were the very people that came out of Egypt. So there was a kind of belief at some time that they had, but they wandered into unbelief. And so the good news that God preached to them, the word, the message, didn't benefit them because they were unbelieving people. Unbelief in God's word. This is our great danger. It's unbelief. The deceitfulness of sin comes from unbelief. And it leads to more unbelief. Think about that. Chapter 3, verse 15 talks about sin being deceitful. And it is. Sin doesn't come with flashing lights saying, I'm going to tempt you to do something really bad now. Right? It comes subtly. It comes in the dark of night. It comes to deceive. And unbelieving people, though through outright rejection, perhaps, or ignorance, or neglect, or lukewarmness concerning God's word, wherever the unbelief comes from, this unbelief will lead to a people perishing. They will go the way of those who came out of Egypt, wandering, who wandered for 40 years and died in the wilderness. And so, When verse 11 says, strive to enter God's rest, it means be diligent to hear the word of God, the good news, God's message, and believe it, and trust it, and hold tightly to it, so that you don't fall like those who died in the wilderness. And so now we see this connection. Right? Verse 11 again says, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Or let us strive to hear with faith God's message and hold on to it. Why? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's able to judge or discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. We are to be diligent to hear and respond in faith to the word of God, to the good news. 
because of the way that God's word is described. So when I asked you, how would you describe God's word? Living and active, something along those lines, did that come to mind? Sharp like a sword, discerning, searching. So having made that connection between 11 and 12, let, let's, let's look at how God's word is described. The power of God's word is described in four ways in this passage. And we, because we, because we don't want to fall by the same sort of disobedience that the Israelites did, right? They came out of Egypt, they followed Moses, they seemed to do good for a while, and then they fell away. We don't want to do that. Let's hear what God's word is described like. First, the word of God is life-giving. Verse 12, the first phrase says, the word of God is living and active. It's living and active. The word living is the, comes from the Greek word zao, meaning the vitality of eternal life. The word active is the, the Greek word energes, which where we get the word energetic or energy. So the, the word of God is energetic and has life-giving power. It's lively in an eternal sense, and it's full of energy, full of power. In other words, it is effective to produce eternal changes in your life and my life. It is effective to produce eternal changes in your life and my life. And listen, you and I don't make it lively and life-giving. It is on its own. Of course, we need to mix it with faith. But we don't make God's word powerful. His word is powerful. Whether you ever were born, God's word is powerful. It's living and active. And there's something very freeing about that. Just realizing whether I was ever born, this, this revelation from God is living and active. Able to bring life-giving changes, eternal changes in our lives. It's a shame that so many Christians treat the word of God as though it was weak and powerless. And, you, and, and, and we've all probably done this. How do we treat God's word? Do we pick it up? Do we read it? Do we study it? Is it more precious than gold to us? Doug Wilson says, Someone's theology, a person's theologies come out of their fingers. In other words, uh, your theology is not just what you think in your brain, but it's, it affects how you live. And so your actual theology is shown by what you do with your fingers and your mouth and your eyes and your feet and the rest of your body. How do we treat God's word? Is it living and active? Do we believe that? Do we believe it's living and active? Americans are all about self-help, right? Self-improvement programs and books, 10 Steps of Freedom, 7 Habits of Highly Effective People, and so forth. And I'm not, I'm not saying there's no benefit in these books. There probably, well, there is benefit in some of them. But the Word of God, God's Word, will benefit you in every way forever. Forever. 
This book is infinitely more valuable than all the other books ever written combined. Do you treat it that way? These are the words of God written down for us. This is the revelation God has given us. And they are alive because the one who speaks them, and I do say speaks, not just spoke them, but the one who speaks them is alive forevermore. The certainty of the power of God's word is expressed beautifully in Isaiah 55, 11, when God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, so shall my word that, be, that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I pray this almost every time I preach, thanking God for it and just saying, Lord, your word says, do this today. Send your word out. Accomplish what you want today. So the word accomplishes or or it's living and active, that for which God sends it. It is effective to produce eternal changes in our lives. And what are some of these changes that it produces in our lives? How about salvation? How about the new birth? That's a pretty significant change in our life, isn't it? To go from death to life. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. It tells us that we, those who are born again, have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. How about revival? Does that sound good? We want reviving personally and for us as a body and for the church of Jesus Christ. Wherever it's found, we want that. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord, just another way of talking about God's word, God's revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. How about rest for your soul? Hebrews 4 9. There, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Jesus says, Come to me. And, and again, it's not like, oh, where, where is he at? What do I need to, where do I need to go? Do I need to go in a closet? No, come to me. In other words, hear my words, listen to what I say, and believe it and find rest for your souls. And so we should pray like the psalmist in Psalm 119, who says, give me, he said, give me life according to your word. The word of God is life-giving. But the word of God is also piercing. Verse 12, the second part says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. The Bible is not a harmless book. It has teeth. It reminds me of the, uh, at the end of, of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when, um, no, it's, it's not at the end. It's more, more toward the beginning. When the beaver says to Lucy 
about Aslan the lion. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And the Bible is not a safe book, but it's a good book. It's the best of books. But it it pierces. The word of God is sharp and it pierces. It cuts. I mean, think about even just the context from the last two weeks. I don't know if I don't know if those the words of 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 the the text and and how Reed expounded it just penetrated, but but it should. Three or four times, I, I didn't count. I think it's four, but it says, Today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Words like this, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, when you hear things like that, our tendency is to say, well, I wonder who that's for. Or, I know who that's for. But listen, it says, be careful, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. The warning about the deceitfulness of sin. These words are meant to penetrate us. They're meant to pierce. That's what they're meant to do. The the word of God is piercing like a sword. And notice it cuts both ways. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. Now, when fighting enemies, a double-edged sword is used only for killing Right? You can swing with both edges and you can kill just as potently with both sides of the sword. But when God's sword or God's word is used on us like a double-edged sword, he uses it ultimately for our good, like a surgeon. Like a surgeon, he cuts, but he does it for a good purpose. He does it to, to expose the disease and ultimately to bring healing. The word of God cuts us to expose sin, the deceitfulness of sin, and then he cuts that sin out in order to heal. A Bible that does not cut cannot expose deadly disease. And I would just say a Bible that does not wound cannot heal. God laments the false prophets over and over again in the book of Jeremiah who only spoke nice words to God's people. All they had to say was, peace, peace, don't worry, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be great, God is good, you're good, we're all good. And God laments them and says, they heal the wound of my people lightly. The word of God doesn't do that. It cuts in order to heal. Let me ask you, when was the last time you were convicted of sin? When you were reading your Bible? Like deeply convicted of of sin. Or when was the last time you were convicted of sin when you heard a sermon? When you sat at church under the ministry of God's word? When was the last time you found yourself repenting when you read the scriptures? It's meant to to lead us to that. It's a sword. If you can't remember, and that this is not 
this is not just to beat you up, but if, if you can't remember, I, I might suggest that you have blunted the sharp edge of God's word or just wrapped it up in pillows so all you feel is just pillows hitting against you. His word must do its necessary cutting in order that it may do the necessary healing. And I, I fear that many have done this. I recently heard a preacher um, say that when he reads his Bible, he puts on the spectacles of God's love. Now, that sounds really pious. It sounds really spiritual. But it became very evident that he was unable to see a lot of what the Bible says because he puts on a special set of glasses to read it. The Bible is the spectacles through which we're to see everything else, right? We don't put on special glasses to read it. We receive it as it comes to us from God. When it brings healing and encouragement and when it wounds us and convicts us and leads us to repentance, we should pray, learn to pray like David and mean it when he said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and I'll just say this. When I was younger, and I, I think less mature, um, I used to think that for New Testament Christians, this prayer was wrong. I don't think it is anymore. You certainly can go overboard. If this is all you pray, it's probably, it's probably taking it too far. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know me. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me. Let, let, Let your word be like a sword that cuts and searches, right? Know my heart, know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way, show me, just reveal it to me. And then, right, that's the, that's the wounding part and then the healing part and lead me in the way everlasting. We should pray this way and mean it, expecting the Lord to actually show us through his word the things in our lives that grieve him. The word of God is a sword that pierces. Next, the word of God is discerning. It says that the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts, excuse me, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The word discern comes from the Greek word kritikos, where we get our word for critique or critic. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had like somebody, uh, just an ordinary human being following me around all the day criticizing me, that'd be really annoying, right? But sometimes we need to be critiqued. God's word does that. It critiques us. In particular, our thoughts and our motivations, our intentions. 
the point here is that the word of God is skilled at critiquing our thoughts and intentions, and we, on the other hand, are not. We are not skilled at discerning our own thoughts and intentions. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. Therefore, the hallmark advice to follow your heart is really bad advice. It is. Uh, I think most people here would probably agree with that, but, but how often do we do exactly that? We follow our own, what we want to do, our own thoughts, our own intentions. We just go for it. We just go with it. Rather than having our hearts, our thoughts, our intentions discerned by God and changed by God, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I I realize that some have taken this verse to such an extreme that every thought and attitude in your heart as a Christian is evil all the time. And of course, we know that's not true because we've been born again. We have God's law written on our hearts. We have the Spirit indwelling us. Our sins have been wiped away through the blood of Jesus. But... We must constantly expose our minds and our, our thoughts, our hearts, our intentions to the scrutiny of God's word. I remember it wasn't that, well, I'll get to that later, never mind. Um, listen to the way that Charles Spurgeon describes the critiquing word of God. He says, the word of God says of this thought, that is vain. And of this thought, it is acceptable. Of this thought, it is selfish. Of this thought, it is Christ-like. It is a judge of the thoughts of men. If we want to truly know ourselves, we must therefore feed on God's word. We really want to know ourselves. We need to feed on what God says. God's word is, it functions like a mirror showing us ourselves in stark reality. James chapter 1 says this, If anyone is a hearer of the word of God but not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. It's like looking in a mirror. right? That's what the word of God is. It's like looking in a mirror and it shows us ourselves. The word of God does this. And it tells us all the wonderful things God has done for us in Christ and who we now are in him. And it also shows us the blemishes and the warts and the sleepers in the eyes and all of that as well. The things that God is still working on. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, said, God's word, read, read, meditated upon, and prayerfully applied will give us brilliant discernment and profound self-knowledge. It wasn't that long ago when I was reading through the book of James and, and I needed this so bad. I was in a funk in my heart. Bad attitude, of, in a fighting mood. I was just not, a good, just not doing well that day. 
And I read this in James chapter 4. It says this, What causes quarrels, fights? And what causes fights among you? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? It's going to diagnose it. It's going to tell us. I needed to hear it that day. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I mean, isn't that discerning? (laughs) Isn't that discerning? And it was great. You know, like the next time my kids got in a fight, I said, you know what causes fights and quarrels among you? I'm not going to ask you. I'm going to tell you. Because we have our own answers, right? What's wrong in my heart right now? Well, I think that so-and-so did this. No, 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 no. It just cuts through the facade. God's word discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Unfortunately, an all-too-common way of approaching the Bible is to critique it rather than let it critique us. We, we are faced with something the Bible says and we think to ourselves, has God really said? But who does that sound like? The serpent in the garden. Paul tells us the Christian is the one who seeks to take every thought captive to obey Christ assuming that every thought is not already taken captive to obey Christ. We're to take it, every thought captive, to obey Jesus Christ. The Word of God is the great critic or discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And finally, the Word of God takes account Up until now, we've been speaking about the the power of God's life-changing, piercing, and discerning word. Now in verse 13, the focus changes or switches from God's word to God himself as the seeing and knowing and evaluating God. Of course, we can't separate God and his word. I mean, 2 Timothy 3.16 says "All, all scripture is breathed out by God. We can't separate the two, so it's natural for the author to do this. Verse 13 gives us a great depiction of the exhaustive knowledge of God when it says this, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows everything, God sees everything. All things are exposed to him in plain sight. The things done in broad daylight, the things done in the deepest, darkest cave, all things are before him. Nothing is hidden from him. The word naked here, used in the ESV, simply means they're laid bare. In fact, that's how the New American Standard translates it. All things are laid bare and exposed to God's sight. Job chapter 34 verse 21 says, For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all of his steps. 
Verse 13 almost forces us to picture ourselves in the hands of God under his divine gaze with every single act, every word, every thought, every glance, every intention, every motivation, every emotion, every affection, every feeling, you might say, being taken into account. Even this very moment. Now, we may fool others, but we cannot fool God. We may pretend before others, but we can't do that with God. We just can't. When he addresses us and speaks of unbelief, disobedience, the deceitfulness of sin, the hardness of heart, we may be able to, you know, put on a good front for others. Maybe even, we might even deceive ourselves or fool ourselves for a season but we cannot do this with God. It also means that he sees every act of love and every work of faith. Jesus says, even a cup of cold water given to someone in my name will be taken into account on the day of judgment. Hebrews 6.10, the author says this, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't overlook the unbelief, the disobedience, and he doesn't overlook the work and the love that we do in his name. Again, Kent Hughes commenting on this verse says, hypocrisy and duplicity will not work. Happily, this means he will miss no good thing. But the sinning and self-righteous heart, excuse me, to the sinning and self-righteous heart, apart from the grace of God, this brings nothing but unmitigated terror. That he sees all things. All things are before him. Your heart is laid bare before him now. And if that's you today, strive to enter the rest that is found in Christ. Isn't that the, wouldn't that be the, the best news to hear? You can relieve that terror in Christ alone. Now, the author writes this to these this, this, small, this small group of Christians who are in the sea of persecution. He writes this in order to be a sanctifying means for them. He writes it so that it might help them cling more tightly to Jesus Christ. He writes this and means for it to be a sanctifying word for them and a saving word for them. The author, both the human author, but more importantly, the divine author, the Holy Spirit, is calling these these believers to not rebel against the word of God and unbelief, to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, to not drift from God's word, but rather to submit to it in faith and to find rest for their souls. So the powerful word of God is life-giving, and piercing, and discerning, and accounting, or 
reckoning. And so how should we respond to this today? How should we respond to this today? It's, it's so important when we, that this is not just an academic ex- exercise. We're, I mean, you're not just gathering information from me. And you, I mean, if anyone kind of feels convicted, you don't just leave just feeling convicted or, or encouraged when we gather, not just encouraged, but what do we do with this? How do we respond? How should we approach the powerful word of God? I have a few things. I'm going to go through these quick. First, repentance. Repentant. For how we have treated God's word, perhaps. This may not apply to everyone, but for how you've treated God's word. Repentant. If you've ignored God's word, if it's been unimportant to you, if you have, if, if it has no place in your life or very little place in your life, if you've played fast and loose with it, if you, if you are, you've blunted the sharp sword and you wrapped a pillow around it and that's, that's how you approach God's word, repent of that today, right now. Because those warnings earlier in chapter four and in chapter three are for you. They're for us. We don't want to do that. We don't want to respond to God's word that way. Number two, believe in the life-giving word of God. It's not just faith in a good feeling that we're after. It's not unbelief in a good feeling. It's not unbelief in some kind of, you know, foggy idea out there. It's we want to have faith and belief in God's word. And so believe, right? Fight to believe God's word. Strive to believe God's word. And when, you f- when there's unbelief, fight against it with all of your might because it's deadly. So believe, repent, believe. Number three, submit to the piercing, convicting, wounding, and healing word of God. Submit to it. God, God has a lot to say to us. Some of it just puts a spring in our step, like we're ready to just go down the road and, man, life is good. And some of it ought to bring us to our knees under his glorious, weighty presence, and some of it ought to strike us to the core of our hearts in conviction, and we are to submit to all of it. Isaiah says, and God says through Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, I think, this is the one that I will esteem, the one who's humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. To tremble at the, at the word of God is just to come with a humble heart and just, what do you say, God? What do you say? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Whatever you say, it's for me. Submit to the piercing, convicting, wounding, and healing word of God. Number four, humble yourself under the discerning word of God. And this goes along with the one prior, but humble yourself under the discerning word of God. Assume that Never assume the Bible's not talking to you. It is talking to you. 
when I say the Bible, of course, I mean God. God is talking to you and me through the scriptures. So humble yourself under the discerning word of God. When he says, this thought is vain, say it's vain. God says so. This thought is Christ-like. Say, thank you, Lord, for working that in me. And number five, obedience before the face of God. When we come to God's word, repentant, believing, submitting, and humble, well, then we get up and we walk in obedience before God's face, right? There, no one is hidden from his sight, right? All, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we live our lives before his gaze. Let's act like we do in obedience to his word. Therefore, strive to hear his word and respond. In, this, is, this is the overarching point again. Strive to hear his word. Here on Sundays when we gather in Bible studies, when you're listening to a podcast, when you open your Bible, strive to hear his word and respond in submissive, humble, obedient faith so that you don't fall into unbelief so that your heart is not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is how we can deal honestly with God as he really is and allow him to deal honestly with us as we really are. We come to his word, repentant, believing, submissive, humble, and ready to obey what he says. And this is the last thing I want to say. When do we, when do we start doing this? Today. Isn't that the word that was used over and over and over again in chapters three and four? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, not tomorrow. In fact, if you wait till tomorrow, it might be too late, right? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. What happens when we hear his voice and we, we turn away? It's like, it's not convenient. I don't want, it's like a, another coat of whatever, goes over your heart, hardening your heart just a bit more. And the next time, just a bit more. And the next time, just a bit more. And at some point, there's no turning back. Someday, it will be too late for some who hear his word often, but keep hardening their hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts We are to respond today. And then when tomorrow is today, we respond today. And when October 14th is today, we respond today. And when January 1st, 2036 comes around, we're to respond today, when that day is today. And every day in between and every day after, we want to hear what God says. We want to respond to him. And not turn away. It might be inconvenient. It'll be painful at times. But it will bring life. Eternal life when you die. And life now. Jesus, when he, when he turned to his disciples and says, everyone's leaving. You're going to leave too? John 6 at the end. And Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray.